Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Peninsula Bible Church Cupertino. Let's prepare our hearts for worship with this reading from Psalm 22. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people, for you have not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. You have not turned your back on them, but you have listened to their cries for help. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For the royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord of all creation, you never change. You are faithful yesterday, today, and always. You are our salvation. So we come to you this morning with praise in our hearts for who you are. And we also come before you with a burden for our world. Be with the people of Israel and Palestine and Ukraine. Give wisdom to the leaders trying to support the protection of civilians. Comfort those who mourn. And through it all, remind us, your disciples, that our responses to these things that are going on is a chance for us to be a witness for you, to show your love. And as we fight our own daily battles, we know you are with us. Help us come to you in prayer. Help us come to you first. You are with us, Father. And as we hear from Sean about the day you won the greatest battle and claimed victory over death, let us rejoice that nothing is impossible with you. In your mighty name, amen. We now turn our attention to the scripture in preparation for Sean's sermon. Hebrews 12, 1b through 2. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand at the throne of God. Sean, please come teach us. All right. Thank you, Jamie. Well, good morning. And my name is Sean Reese. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to see all of you this morning. As you know, we continue our studies in the Gospel of John this morning, a series I've titled, Come and See. And today, I invite you to come and see that it is finished, but it has not ended. It is finished, but it has not ended. John's gospel continues even after Jesus is dead and buried, implying that death does not have the last word. Over the years, Adidas, the shoe company, has run a series of commercials uh, for their shoes involving international soccer stars. They've included stars such as Messi and Ronaldo and Neymar and Kaká and Beckham and I think James Garcia is in one of them. <laughs> and in general, the commercials begin with some reflective 
you know, music and words from each star, and then they, then, they, then they show them doing some hot dog moves, which soccer stars are known to do. And then the ads almost all end with an amazing goal, an impossible goal maybe, and the caption comes up, impossible is nothing. Impossible is nothing. I believe that's an accurate description for our passage today. Impossible is nothing for our God. John, in his gospel, gives us four resurrection scenes. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, one week later, and then sometime later near the Sea of Galilee. We'll spend two weeks in Sunday morning, this week and next week and then one week each for the other three scenes. So in the springtime, when we celebrate Easter, we only get one week to explore the resurrection. We get five weeks this fall, so that's awesome. He is risen. Very good, very good. Well, if you were here last week, you'll know that we did end last week on Good Friday. Jesus had died on the cross on Friday afternoon after he had said, it is finished. And then he gave up his spirit. After that, two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, took Jesus' body off the cross, packed his body with 75 pounds of spices, and laid his body in a new tomb. John tells us the tomb was in a garden. John then skips Saturday, the Sabbath, and jumps straight to Sunday morning. And that's where we begin today. So I invite you into our our text today, John 20, beginning in verse 1. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And we'll stop there. And let's make a few observations about these two verses. John begins our text by saying it's the first day of the week. Now isn't that an interesting way to say it? the first day of the week. I mean, he could have said three days later or on the third day, which is what we sing in most of our hymns. Jesus died on Friday afternoon. That's day one. Day two begins at sundown on Friday. Day three begins at sundown sundown on Saturday. So that's how the Jews count days because that's how the song of creation in Genesis counted the days. So it is day three, which is actually how Jesus spoke about his resurrection. He said he would rise after three days. So why does John say on the first day? Well, it is Sunday, the first day of the week. But I think John is making a more important point with his language. It's not only the first day of a new week, it's the first day of a new world. Amen. Amen. 
a whole new world. As I said last week, the new world which Jesus died to bring into being has now come. And John wants us to see clearly that we've entered the first day of this new world. By the way, this is why the early Christians made the huge move to change the sacred day from Saturday to Sunday. Most of them are Jews. So this change is simply massive. And it gives this story the ring of truth, doesn't it? The reason they did it is because what is now most important is not the seventh day of the first creation, but the first day of the new creation. And now, every Sunday, we celebrate this whole new creation that Jesus died to bring into being. Next, we meet Mary Magdalene. As we will explore our text this week and next week, notice the firsthand nature of this text. Many scholars believe this account to be an authentic memory preserved and handed on by Mary herself. It certainly reads that way. As we will primarily see Mary come to experience the reality and wonder of the resurrection. Now this is the second appearance of Mary in this gospel. She first appeared at the foot of the cross, chapter 19. In early Christian interpretation, her character was usually conflated with Mary of Bethany, especially surrounding the anointing scenes in the Gospels. However, these are two different Marys. So who is this Mary, Mary Magdalene? Well, she appears as a faithful disciple of Jesus in all four Gospels. In Luke 8, she is said to have been healed of seven demons. In Matthew, Mark, and John, she shows herself to be courageous by staying at the foot of the cross while Jesus suffers and dies. And in all four Gospels, she is the one to discover the empty tomb. Indeed, she has to be one of the most fortunate people to have ever lived. She also may have been a woman of means. Mark tells us she brought costly spices with her to the tomb. And because of that, it is thought that she helped finance Jesus' ministry. I think it's interesting that Mary has become a bit of a pop culture icon in our time. She's appeared in several recent books, movies, paintings, and music. In fact, I'm told she now has her own musical. I, I don't know any, anything about that, but much of the modern stories and art are built on legends and non-biblical materials. But, but people are intrigued by her story. And for good reason. I mean, she's a primary person involved in the events which changed the world. Now, although John focuses on Mary, there are other women with her. As the first plural, first person plural pronoun in verse two suggests. But even in the other gospels, where the other women are listed, Mary's always listed first, meaning she is 
the primary actor within this group of women. And then John spotlights just her. Now, as you may know, it's the women's inclusion in the resurrection accounts which also give the resurrection story the ring of truth. In scholarly circles, it's argued that the first Christians made up these resurrection stories for a number of different reasons. But the fact that all four Gospels tell the Easter story with Mary and the other women as the first witnesses powerfully argues against the fabrication of this story. If the first century males who wrote the Gospels were making up stories to win other males in their culture, they simply would not have made up a story with females as the first witnesses. They just wouldn't. In the first century, no one ever argued the truth of one's claims by appealing to the testimony of women. Sorry about that, women. That's how it was back then. In fact, Celsus, a Greek philosopher, was a strong opponent of Christianity simply because the resurrection narratives had Jesus appearing to women. The fact is, then the first century, if a man's case in court involved the testimony of a woman, it was thrown out immediately. As Ben Witherington III says, early Christianity had labored under the burden of trying to explain the idea of a crucified Messiah. It's simply implausible that they would make things doubly difficult by conjuring up appearance stories to women witnesses that outsiders would be disposed to doubt from the outset. No one would have made up these events with women discovering the empty tomb. What we have here, what we have here is an eyewitness account of what actually happened in history on that first Easter morning. Now John doesn't say why Mary is going to the tomb, but we know from the other gospels that she's going there to anoint the dead body of Jesus. In other words, she's not going to the tomb to see if a miracle has happened. <laughs> Mary goes to the tomb to sit by the body of Jesus and weep and anoint the dead body. But when she arrives at the cemetery garden, she realizes the stone has been taken away from the tomb. And she is initially horrified. She's horrified. This is terrible. And, and we miss this reaction of Mary because in our hymns we speak of the good news of the empty tomb for good reason, of course. But initially, the tomb being empty was horrible. The sight of the stone taken away struck terror in Mary's heart. And she immediately concludes that someone has stolen the body. In other words, she doesn't conclude that he is risen. <laughs> She's not expecting a resurrection. No one's expecting a resurrection, even though Jesus had predicted it. And it's a known fact 
that grave robbing was a common crime in the first century. It was so common, it was so common that a few years later, around AD 40, Emperor Claudius made a decree prohibiting this activity on pain of death. Capital punishment for grave robbers. Now why would they rob graves? Answer, to get the expensive linens in which bodies were wrapped. As well as to get the expensive spices packed between the linens. But Mary is so disturbed by the stone being removed, she runs back to tell Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John. John, as you probably realize, regularly calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Again, not because he thinks he's more special than anyone else, but because what else do you say about yourself after you know the whole story, except that you are a disciple that Jesus loves? My hope and prayer is that all of us can say that we are disciples whom Jesus loves. Verse three. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So after Mary had told Peter and John, they get up and they run to the garden cemetery. John John then says that he outruns Peter to the tomb. Now why does he tell us that? Years ago, commentators would have said that there was a rivalry between Peter and John, or between Peter's churches and John's churches, and John's churches were superior. (laughs) Or they would have said that John was a better athlete than Peter, or maybe younger than Peter, but I highly doubt that that's why John tells us these details. I think the main reason is simply to set up their entrances into the tomb. As we will find out, what's inside the tomb is very important to John. And even though John gets to the tomb first, he, in obedience to the Jewish customs of the time, does not enter the tomb. The tomb of a recently deceased person would be especially unclean. So John stays outside, but Peter, (laughs) Peter, even though he arrives second, goes right in. He barges right in. What's he got to lose? He's lost his friend. He's probably feeling pretty miserable about his denials. Forget the rules, he goes in. Now John notes, that both men see linen cloths lying there. 
John actually mentions the linen cloths three times in three verses. He's referring to the strips of cloth, which Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, had loving, lovingly and carefully wrapped around the body of Jesus on Good Friday. And they are lying there as though Jesus had simply evaporated out of them. When Peter enters the tomb, he also sees the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, folded up neatly in its own place. In that time, bodies were wrapped in two parts, feet to neck with one set of linens and the head wrapped with a second separate set of linens. So the first set is lying there, presumably still wound, but collapsed. And the second, the face cloth, is found by itself, as if Jesus had removed the cloth, as if to say, I don't need that anymore, folded it nicely, and set it off to the side. Now, we have to ask, why is John telling us all of these details? Well, I think for two reasons. The first is, it tells Mary that the tomb had not been robbed. It hadn't been robbed. There were no grave robbers. Her conclusion that someone stole the body is not correct. Everything in the, in the tomb is far too orderly. No grave robber would have left it this way. Furthermore, the treasures that a robber would want are still there, namely the linen cloths. But secondly, and most importantly, what John and Peter see there is being said over against what happened to Lazarus in chapter 11. Chapter 11 would have been maybe a couple weeks before this time, before this first Easter morning. And by setting up this contrast, John is revealing what the true nature of resurrection is. So in chapter 11, if you remember, in the village of Bethany, Jesus had called Lazarus out of the tomb. And Lazarus came out wearing his linen, linen cloths. John said it this way. He said, Lazarus came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Lazarus would have looked like a mummy walking out of the tomb. And when he comes out with the linen strips still on, Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. In other words, Lazarus still needs to be freed from the chains of death. And the scene here in chapter 20 is a profound contrast. What happens to Jesus is very different than what happened to Lazarus. Lazarus was resuscitated. Jesus is resurrected. Lazarus went into the grave and came back from the grave, but will one day go back into the grave. Jesus does not come back from the grave. Jesus goes through the grave and through death and comes out the other side. 
thereby conquering death. As one writer says, resurrection is not a rescue from death, it's a passing through death. Resurrection is not a coming back to this order of existence as Lazarus did. It's a passing through death into a new order of existence. Lazarus will die again. But Jesus goes through death and comes out the other side into a whole new existence where he will never die again. And this is the key reason John pays so much attention to these grave cloths. A true resurrection, not resuscitation, has happened here. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, so that would be John, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So up until this point, John had only been looking into the tomb. But now he enters and seeing everything he believes. Coming, seeing, and believing has been a common, common theme throughout this gospel. In fact, this is the great invitation of this gospel. It echoes Jesus' first invitation in chapter 1 and John's invitation at the end of this chapter, chapter 20. So what does John believe at this point? Well, it appears that after seeing the empty grave and how the linens are arranged, John comes to believe that Jesus has been resurrected. However, according to verse 9, it appears that perhaps complete understanding may not be there yet. And John, being a good disciple of Jesus, wants to first check the scriptures. It seems that John is saying that without the testimony of scripture, the disciples would not have a complete understanding of the resurrection, that they would need the testimony of scripture to fully believe in the resurrection. That's good discipleship. They're going to go now and search the scriptures. So what scriptures would they go to? Well, three come to mind. Uh, the most common ones, Psalm 16:10, "For you, O God, will not abound, abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption." So in a few weeks, at Pentecost, Peter would go to this psalm to explain the resurrection. Or maybe Isaiah 53:10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53, that great song of the suffering servant, the pinnacle of Old Testament prophecy right here and within the predicted suffering of the servant, there's this hint of resurrection. Even though the servant will give up his life 
as an offering, there will be a future. He will see his offspring and his days will be prolonged. It's interesting, interesting that Peter will quote almost that entire passage in Isaiah in his first letter. Or Hosea 6.2, he will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. It's a more obscure verse for sure, but it speaks specifically of a God being a God of resurrection. So those are a few possibilities for where Peter and John may have gone. I think it's also worth noting that uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is writing, it's the longest exposition of the resurrection in the New Testament, and he begins that chapter by saying, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that text, 1 Corinthians, was written long before John's gospel is written. So, so that gives you some background for the scripture that John and Peter are going to go and search and, um, and come to a full understanding of the resurrection. Now to close the text then, Peter and John return home with at least some understanding of what has happened. And, and we'll pick up next week with Mary. Mary went back to the tomb with the men and she stayed there. And that's what we'll pick up next week. So what do we learn? What do we learn from these 10 verses on this first resurrection morning? Well, I think at least three things. Number one, a confirmation of Jesus' identity. Last week, if you remember, we talked about what John wanted us to see in the crucifixion. And one of the key things was for us to see the identity of Jesus. And actually, John showed us five identities of Jesus at the crucifixion. The true son of the father, the true king of the entire world, the true high priest that intercedes for us, the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and the true spirit giver who can now pour out his spirit on all people. Now that Jesus has been raised, it is confirmed Jesus is all of those things. With the resurrection, we can be assured that Jesus is all of those things. Number two, confirmation of the way of Jesus. The resurrection also confirms the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross. See, the resurrection isn't just about living in the future. It's also about the way we live right now in the present. Many times we come to the resurrection texts. We come to Easter morning and we think, whew, made it through all that suffering stuff. We can now stop talking about losing our lives. We can now stop talking about denying ourselves. We can now stop talking about sacrificially living for others. 
We can leave that all behind and now start talking about the happy life. No. Easter doesn't put an end to the way of the cross. Easter confirms that the way of the cross is the path to true life. Jesus had said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. I think we just read right by that, but he's not joking. He calls us to follow him in the path of self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And Easter is God's great yes to the way Jesus lived and the way he died. Easter is God's great yes to self-denial and giving ourselves away for others. And of course, we've already talked a lot today about following Jesus on this path, serving our kids and our youth, helping at the fall festival, putting a shoebox together. That's all stuff about denying ourselves daily. And of course, there's all kinds of other ways to get involved in following the Jesus way of self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And number three, impossible is nothing. Because of the resurrection, impossible now drops from our vocabulary. There's a new power unleashed in this world resurrection power. In this new world, the same power which raised Jesus from the dead raises us from the dead in all our forms of death, whether that be bitterness or jealousy or greed or fear or addiction or whatever else. The empty tomb is a symbolic declaration of the victory of God over the power of sin, evil, and death. For the first time in history, death did not have the last word. The reign of death is done. The reign of life has begun. And because of that, because the tomb was empty and remains empty, the word impossible drops from our vocabulary. Because the impossible happened. It happened in history. With Jesus in the picture, we can now have unshakable hope within our circumstances. Because impossible is nothing for our God. He is risen. Amen. Now receive this benediction. The tomb is empty and remains empty. So may Christ, the risen one, so live within you through his spirit that you go from here with the light of his unshakable hope in your eyes, his way of self-giving love guiding your hands and your feet. 
and the word impossible dropping from your vocabulary. He is risen. He is risen Amen.